0: Me is none of my usual co-hosts. I have yeeted them into the sun. Uh, they they have been thrown below the waves. I don't I don't know. It just scheduling happens is really what's going on here. Um, but uh, 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 the lovely town to Danielle has stepped in once again to help me out. So, hello, Danielle.
1: Hello. I am both Dixie and Matthew today.
0: Yes, you are. You are the the Cochrane Dawkins Gasholt.
1: Yeah. I mean, last week and the week before, I was you, Right. I, so it makes sense that this week,
0: I am them. <laughs> so, what I'm hearing is that in a couple of weeks, you're going to just be the bad Be, cast. be the bad <laughs> cast. God, I hope not. <laughs> welcome to the Danielle cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can yeah, see. welcome to Danielle cast. I'm your host, Danielle. This is my co-host, Danielle and Danielle.
1: Yes. <laughs> and then I'll do silly voices and... <laughs> I'll do like a really bad English accent.
0: Yes. <laughs> oh god, I'm gonna acquire those at one point. One of those at one point, I'm sure.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: I have that kind of weird, not quite American, not quite English accent. Oh, forward, it'll be but... the
1: transatlantic accent. You'll yes. you'll be able to, to announce uh, shows and the news and stuff like that. But
0: so I actually read an article digressing right away, because this is how this works. But I actually read an article recently about the transatlantic accents. Uh-huh. Um, and it was like, why does why do people in old movies sound fake? Is basically what the clickbait was. And I was like, I'm curious. Uh, and it turns out I knew the part that the transatlantic accent was a manufactured accent. Yes. What I didn't know that it was actually proposed by an Australian linguist as a way to homogenize all English-speaking accents into one universal accent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The idea was that if everyone sounded the same and spoke English the same, it would reduce confusion. um, Everyone would understand each other more clearly. And apparently Hollywood around the 40s, decided that this is where things were going. And so they encouraged people to speak in that accent specifically so they could sell movies abroad, assuming that everyone would eventually be speaking in this accent. Oh. I'm like, that's really interesting because I think nobody except for America actually bought into that. Yeah. That's
1: interesting. And a little like, well, there's Hollywood for
0: you. Always right? trying
1: to figure out how to increase their overseas market.
0: Yeah, because that was the point where Hollywood was just realizing that that was a thing they could do. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, people outside of our country like these things. How can we sell to them better? Right. It was also unrelated, but like it was asking me how long that hung on because uh, I've been recently watching uh, the Danger Man television show from the 60s.
1: Danger Man?
0: Yeah, it was in the US it's called Secret Agent. Um, which was that secret
1: agent, man. Oh, okay, okay. Um, It was
0: Patrick McGuin's spy show before The Prisoner.
1: All right, all right.
0: Uh, And he also did, first couple seasons, he did that transatlantic accent because he was ostensibly American, which is hilarious. But Uh, uh, he did that kind of not-quite-British, not-quite-American accent for the show so that it would sell better in America, even though it was an English production. Right, because this is what Americans sound like. Right. But that was 1960 when Americans stopped sounding like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So it is wild to me that Americans in media sounded a very specific way for, like, a decade and a half. And all because of an Australian, apparently.
1: That's, That's wild. You know, speaking of American accents, like clearly i can distinguish different regional accents within the american continent because i am from america right. but hearing british actors do an american accent and do it well mm-hmm. is always so wild to me because i it, it is like they often do the accentless accent right Where it's like, oh, you don't really seem like you have very much of a regional accent. Uh, And I'm like, I don't know what the American accent sounds like to non Americans.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I mean, the reverse is true. Like, um, uh, I remember I went to go see, um, uh, I don't, I feel Sky Captain tomorrow. It was like 10, 15 years ago. I went to go see a movie with some friends of mine in England. um, And it was a bunch of Americans doing a British accent. And again, that kind of, what we view as the quote unquote generic British accent, which is kind of central London BBC Newscaster accent. Right. Uh and and to which my, my friend turned to me at the movies, is that what we sound like to you? And I was like, kinda Yeah right? I mean Yeah, you do. Uh but then I mean you're right. It's like it's it's fascinating to watch British actors. And then some of them like do get it. Like um watching Daniel Craig Daniel Craig do Benoit Blanc.
1: Oh my god. And that is like so that is Kentucky. Good. That is
0: straight up fucking Kentucky.
1: It <laughs> is so good. Yeah.
0: And I was just amazed. Because I like, I I've, I've lived in Southern Ohio, which basically means I've heard a lot of Kentucky accent. I was like, oh no, that, that he knows exactly. That is a very specific. Accent. That's not that's like southern Kentucky. It's like I can almost like on the map of Kentucky tell you roughly where that accent's from. That's how yes. specific it is.
1: It's a very specific accent. And it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so good. And I, I don't know, I just like I've definitely seen American actors try to do Southern accents and it's just over the top. Like, Oh my goodness. Nobody sounds like this in the South. Like, come on, do a little like character study or something. (laughs)
0: And and, And so I love when like, also um, uh, because I lived in Atlanta for so long, I have friends who are mostly American friends, weirdly enough, uh, who are like, Oh, so start doing some kind of random southern accent. It's like nobody in Georgia sounds like that, right? (laughs) Most of them sound like they're from the Midwest, honestly. Yeah.
1: Well, and it depends on the parts of the south that you're in, right? If you're in a big city, people are going to have accents like I do, Mm -hmm. which is – I don't know how southern I sound generally, but probably not that strongly. No. Where if you go – outside of the city to like a rural town you're going to hit the stronger regional accent um but if you grew up in the city and you live in the city and you haven't witnessed those accents they can sound really like wildly different
0: uh yeah. I mean, and Dicky's also mentioned i'm not going to narrow it down to a state but Dixie's mentioned that she grew up in the south as well mm-hmm. um but like you you know she relatively big city um and, and i can hear a bit of a draw in both of your collective accents but that's because i have lived in this country for a long time and i and also i've lived in the midwest which has you know some connections to the the, the northern parts of the southern accent um and so it's like i can hear bits and pieces of it uh okay. but yeah no like it's nothing like that Exaggerated character you're talking about?
1: Yeah. Well, I have. What's funny is that I have lived in different parts of the South, and I have met people from different parts of the South, and I have like a range of Southern accents that I can imitate. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like, there's like the old money Georgia accent where people assume people from Georgia sound like, but yes. it's actually like.
0: Gone with the wind. You know.
1: Gone <laughs> with the wind. Yeah. Like bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also like the Arkansas hick southern mm. accent. And then there's also like uh, a Louisiana southern accent. And then there's also a Texan accent. Yep.
0: Uh, <laughs> and and, and then there's also like other kind of like Appalachia has a distinct accent. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite a state accent. No, um, right. There is a Floridian accent, but it has kind of gone extinct almost at this point, I think.
1: <sighs> yeah, it's been drowned out by a lot of people from the north moving into Florida. hmm And that's true of the Texas accent also because a lot of people from California have moved into Texas. Oh, yeah, And sure. the Texan accent isn't as strong uh, as it used to be.
0: Yeah, no, that, that that's a good point. Because they yeah, like a lot of uh, media people are probably. Okay, I'm assuming movies like Austin and whatnot. That makes sense. But no, I did not invite you on this podcast to talk about accents. <laughs> I did invite you on this podcast because I want to talk about your puppy. Yeah, that is very. Important oh yes. About. Tell me about Klaus. That. Uh,
1: I I got up to go use the bathroom before uh, before we started this podcast, which woke mm. him up, and so mm-hmm. now he is furiously chewing on all of his toys. No, oh. uh, and trying to get my attention because he's bored. That, that, so, that, that's
0: accurate. That sounds accurate.
1: Yeah, he is. Uh, at least he's chewing on his toys and not bringing shoes to me. Last night he was uh, bringing in shoes, and every time I would take a shoe away, he'd leave and bring one back, another one back.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. You want he, this, right? No. Yeah, I, I don't want.
1: I don't want you chewing on shoes, my friend, my pal. <laughs>
0: My buddy. Well, good. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that, that Klaus is is settling in.
1: He is. He's uh gotten a lot more comfortable in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still working on potty training. I mean, it's only been a week and a half. Uh, he's still he's pretty good about going outside, but he's still a little iffy on letting me know when he needs to go to the bathroom urgently. Mm-hmm. Um. I can kind of predict, like, oh, you just ate, so, you know, in 30 minutes I'm going to need to take you outside. Right. Um, But sometimes it's, like, in 15 minutes and then he doesn't alert me. (laughs) Mm. So, we're working on it. Uh, It's a a work in progress. We're trying to teach him how to use a bell to let us know that he needed to go outside. Mm -hmm. And... At first I thought, okay, he picked up the bell thing pretty quickly because he would mess with the bell and I'd right. take him outside and he would pee.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and he wouldn't mess – it doesn't mess with the bell all the time. The problem is, is that he doesn't always use the bell. Uh-huh. Sometimes he'll just go and like poop in the house Ooh. and I'll be like, well, why didn't you use the bell? Why didn't you tell me?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, he also enjoys chewing on the bell, and so I don't know when he's chewing on the bell if it's just him wanting to teethe on something that's hard or mm-hmm. if he actually needs to go outside. Uh, so I take him outside anyway. I am a slave to the bell, uh, but it is – it's still a work in
0: progress. <laughs> Poor guy. He's trying to figure it all out.
1: Yeah, he's still trying to figure things out. hes He's just a little guy right now.
0: Got a tiny brain,
1: yeah, not much in there. No, it's ridiculously smart, but oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like, I bought a puzzle toy, one of those little, like, slidey things where the, the treats are under, like, slidey gizmos that oh, he has yeah, to, like, yeah. move out of the way to get to the treats. Uh-huh. Um, and there's multiple different things that slide and different, like. Some things you have to slide and then slide again to get to the treat, and every time, no matter what combination I put things in, he has all the treats out in under a minute. Wow! He's just like uh, this is. It's like I put them on the floor. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't even bother the puzzle.
1: Yeah, it's like oh, no, slide this, slide this. Oh, I got the treat. Like I'm cool. I'll just like okay, well. Today I tried the. I saw something on TikTok where this woman put treats in like a a towel, and tied the towel up, and uh-huh. then put another like put some more treats into another towel and tied it around the first towel, and had kind of this layered towel thing. Uh huh. Um, and he pulled that apart. I, I did that. And he pulled that apart within like two minutes. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he is very smart. That's yeah, dangerous. He is-
1: yeah, yeah, he's, he's very smart, he's dangerous, uh, I'm gonna have to give him a job. Yeah. Like, he's he's gonna need a job, because otherwise, I think I'm gonna lose my house.
0: <laughs> right, what happened to your house, got eaten by dog? Eaten
1: by bored dog, yes.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, Darby's not quite that bright, um, but like, she, she's still pretty smart, like, um, I backed a Kickstarter a year ago. Um, mm mm-hmm. And sadly, I think the toy is now lost to the move, but uh, it was a hard rubber D20. And there was, it's, it's hollow, and it had a hole in the one. So whenever the die rolled the 20, a treat would come out the bottom, right? And I was like, that's cute, that's fun. But she figured out kind of like, if she just picked it up in her mouth and banged it on the floor a few times, the treats would just fall out. And it didn't really matter kind of what side it was on. I'm like, that's, that is an answer. I, I, I commend you for your brute force approach to solving the problem (laughs) right right not quite the intended solution
1: yeah we had you know when roxy was around uh i had gotten her one of these little slider puzzle things that was a little simpler Mm -hmm. and she it took her a little bit to figure it out but then once she did it was like pointless to put treats in it because she would just do it immediately um but her initial effect or her initial attempts were not to slide things around, but to just flip it over mm. and like shake it. Right. <laughs> Until things fell out of it.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's uh, interesting. Um, I, I, for a while I was into watching uh, videos of people who make squirrel traps, I put that in kind of in quotes, um, but kind of just a way to, um. Make squirrels work for the the treats,
1: uh huh, yeah,
0: uh, and uh, obstacle courses is kind of what they can, can, can be classified as, right? Uh, and it's fascinating because it's an interesting way to kind of here is what I intend the squirrel to do, and how they actually solve the problems. And but you are right; it's the same thing as like you see like one squirrel kind of work it out, but then as soon as one figures it out and goes back to its group, then
1: it like teaches it well the others. Yeah, that's a, I love that. <laughs>
0: It's 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 so cool to me. I don't know. I, I just really dig the idea that that the, the the cycle between solving a problem and getting a solution just iterates faster and faster and faster until it becomes almost non-existent. When animals can just laser focus on that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Animals are. I, I love them. But uh, yeah, Klaus is Klaus is an intelligent creature, uh, full of puppy energy, and I. I try to keep up with him as much as possible. Uh, I'm going to have to start doing like some tr- some training sessions mm-hmm. uh, to maybe kind of wear out his mind a little bit because he gets interested in doing things. But... Yeah uh i'm like right now i am trying to do this podcast and he has left the room and i don't know what he's doing and i can't <laughs> go and find him <laughs> and tell him to stop uh right that's so like the most
0: dangerous thing of like what's Doug dog doing right now
1: right uh he's got three cats in the house that that he loves very very much and they're not so sure of him right um And sometimes that's what he's doing is trying to to interact with the cats who are hissing at him. Uh, So, I don't know. My husband's also around, so if he's getting into trouble, he can maybe take care of that.
0: You, you don't sound really confident it's like he could probably maybe take care of that i
1: don't know <laughs> no he, he might he might not be awake
0: i just His... imagine being like no pink panther style chase between your husband and the dog <laughs> yeah uh, but no so um this is like great I, I mean i uh, if people ever wonder like, I'm like what meetings are like between me and daniel just take the first 20 minutes and Extrapolate that to however long our meeting is. It's pretty much our meetings.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, <laughs> sometimes we talk about work. What were we supposed to talk about on this podcast today?
0: Right. So today we're going to talk about world building. Um, world that was building. The, the plan. Um, And uh, it's something that I we've talked about in bits and pieces throughout various other episodes. I mean, to be honest, uh, I just did the math. We're getting close to our 250th episode. So we've done a whole lot of these. So I'm starting to kind of blur together after several years what we have and haven't talked about. Uh, but I don't think we've talked explicitly about what it's like to either build a tabletop role-playing game world from scratch or to fill in gaps of an existing world. Both Because they're, they're both different but related disciplines, and you and I have both done a lot of that, both of those in right. our, our career. Um, so... I guess the best place to start would be is that when I say to you, hey, Danielle, I want to hire you to do some world building, what is the first thing you think of when that phrase gets used in that way? Uh,
1: Well, you know, if you were to say to me, hey, I want to hire you to do some world building, I'd probably start with some questions. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I'd want to know if you already have something in mind Mm -hmm. uh, or any groundwork laid out yet. Or is it a clean slate? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd also want to know what kind of world we're building. (laughs) Right. So, you know, is this, uh, is this, what's the genre that we're doing this in? Is this fantasy? Is this
0: horror? Is this cyberpunk, you know? I mean, do you think genre's a pretty good starting point for these conversations? Um,
1: I mean, I think I think so specifically just so you could take the start to take things in the right direction, right? If if I'm like, oh man, we'll have dragons and you know city states at war with one another, and you're like, oh, this is supposed to be Uh, of romance. And I'm like, okay, we can still do that, but like maybe, or this is supposed to be set in the real world, only Uh a little different, right? Like we want to, I kind of want to know where to go with the setting Mm -hmm. uh, before I start a bunch of world building. And yeah, I think genre is a a really good first place uh, to say like, okay, this is where we're going to narrow down like, I mean, horror could be still in a fantastical world. It could it could be in the real world. It could be in so many different worlds to make a, a horror game. But it's going to color my world building.
0: Right. And that's actually what, I was, what I was thinking about. Because um, as you said, Dragon, I realized a perfect example of that was when you and Rich talked about Scion Dragon specifically. Yep. Uh, because... If I remember correctly, correct if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, Rich came to you and said, "Hey, we want to do a new chunk of Scion, so it's going to have all of the existing Scion world building with it, uh, but we want to add kind of an espionage flair." Yes, and uh, that kind of, like, like I said, it, that's when we use a kind of genre shorthand. It's not necessarily okay. I'm going to make a blog game. Rather, it's a set of tropes and uh narrative components that you can start then start to build from so in this case okay i have to combine the real world with narrative myth with espionage okay now i have enough chunks and how does that how does overlap how are those different interesting ways how are those different concerning ways um uh so it, it it's i know when, when people approach me i i, I i'm similar, okay what, what are the kind of the the the, the rules of the world, what are the, the scope of it. And and you're right, genre is a kind of good way to kind of start the conversation. But I'm always suspicious when people give me one genre and kind of just stop. It's like, I want a fantasy world. Okay. That doesn't that <sighs> But what sounds do you mean you give me information, but it's not really helpful? <sighs>
1: right. But it is it's like the you know, it's an it's a plank of wood mm, at the okay. start of a house. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we need it, even if it is kind of useless all on its own. Mm -hmm. I think you start with that and then you narrow down and you start asking more questions. You start kind of digging in deeper and then you can get into the nitty gritty of the world building itself. But yeah, I think you need to build some constraints before you can build the world and set ideas. Like you say, tropes or ideas or, um, You know, especially if it's for a game, you know, what is the game about? What are you doing in the game? Um, That'll help me know how to build the world out. Um, You know, I'm thinking about how I built a world for a game I cannot talk about. (laughs) Uh
0: (laughs) Oh, the NDA ninjas.
1: Yes. And there was, you know... When I think about that process, I was like, "I want to make an X genre game." Mm. I'm going to be so vague. It's going to be great.
0: I want to make a game about stuff. And I'm going to make a game about doing things.
1: I'm going to make a game in this genre. So, right. what does that mean? And then I was like, "I want it to be inspired by this kind of media." Okay, mm. so I I know the genre and I know the media inspirations. And then right. now I'm going to say, okay. Um, this is like the overarching idea that I have for the the kind of game, like what you're going to do in the game, right? Or the, the trouble of the world is, is this like big overarching story point, okay? And now I'm going to dig deeper and say, um, I want to have, uh, you know, various s- groups of people who are in conflict with one another over this overarching plot point. Uh Okay. Now I need to individually go in and define those groups of people. And I want each of those groups of people to have an internal conflict that makes sense within the world that if you say, go to the area of the world that that group of people is in, you could maybe even spend all your time solving their individual, internal problem without even thinking about the big overarching problem. Right. Um, And, and do that for each of the groups and make sure that they are also have interlocking problems like, oh, I have an internal problem with this group, but it is caused maybe by this group over here and things that they're doing. And mm-hmm. there's some conflict between the two, and then you start getting into the really nitty gritty of who are the people there, who are the movers and shakers, what is, uh, you know, what is exactly going on in X Y Z location, uh, and and what does that mean to the people who are living there? Um. So yeah, I think genre, then tropes, then like, what are you doing in the game? Like the overall kind of story and then just keep narrowing things down
0: from there. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a well, yeah, you have a lot of really good points there, but, but the one I'm gonna kind of tease out right now is um, when you're kind of putting a world together, I mean, we're, we're, we're starting from tropes, we're kind of then digging in. For tabletop games, there needs to be kind of a lot going on.
1: It really does, yeah. Uh,
0: Because if if you're making, say, a novel or a comic or a movie, you actually don't always want to do that. You want to have a relatively clear conflict. Um, And then if you're good, you can then tease things in the background. Um, An example of this, I think, is John Wick. The first John Wick movie is extremely clear cut. But as the movies go on, you start to see there's more going on in the background. The world gets built out more and more factions come into play. But the first John Wick is extremely clear. A man his wife and his dog are dead he wants revenge and he gets it you know that that, that's the whole movie Um, and then by the time you get into the third movie it's like and then there's this society of assassins and they all have these weird gold coins and whatnot but i mean but then you've had time to build that out with a tabletop game because the idea is you don't know exactly how people are going to use it you want to have a lot of hooks because and we call them hooks because we want something for people to catch their attention literally their their (laughs) attention snags on something and they go, oh, I could do something with this. And because we don't know what exactly they're going to do with it, you ha- the, 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 the first couple of things you think might be the big ones, they may sail right past, but they find something deeper within and go, oh, actually, this is what really excites me about this game. Um, so I don't want to say overcomplicate, but kind of you want to overcomplicate your setting a bit uh, with the idea that most people are going to ignore chunks of it. Right. Even if they... Even if they say, oh, no, we're going to follow the book exactly as written and whatnot, they're still just naturally things are going to be de-emphasized. And when they're going to bring the clarity of conflict to their individual games, you don't want to make the game... uh, You don't want to reduce complexity in the world building because what then comes across is a game that feels very shallow. Right. Uh, An example from my own work uh, was Trinity Anima, right? Mm -hmm. In the fence, I mean... It was already a pretty complicated approach in the sense that we had more or less two genres jammed together at once. And so we had to kind of figure out where those tropes overlapped, uh, where they differed, and how to make those differ- differing tropes work together. And, and luckily the conceit of uh, the high fantasy stuff only takes place in the certain game worlds helped us to kind of compartmentalize to a degree. Uh, but I did need to have one clear through line for both of those. This is one. It, 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 I, it sounds like I'm making an exception here, but I, I, follow me here. Um, the, the mystery of something's happening in the video game that people in the real world want to investigate. Right. Uh, uh, that seems like it's a contradiction of what I'm saying. It's like, oh, there's a very clear mystery here. Most people are going to funnel into that mystery. So you're not overcomplicated the world. That's not actually what's happened that is the bridge between two very disparate chunks. I needed to have a reason to go between them. Mm -hmm. But in each of those chunks, we then have a very diverse economy. Like the fantasy setting of anima is more intricate than a lot of tabletop fantasy games. Yes. (laughs) There's like five different species, none of which look like traditional fantasy species, except for uh, um, uh, humans. Um, The classes work kind of like mmo classes at the surface but also have different progressions inside of them uh there are all sorts of different nations there's lots of world mysteries there's a a strange mythology and how magic works is distinct from most other fantasy games and that's just like one half of a book about this also the cyberpunk world where the cyberpunk stuff again there's five different factions that player characters can get engaged with. Um, there's a history, some of which is even in that book, because it relates to Aberrant and then future history to Aeon. Right. Uh, so there's a lot going on in that game in each chunk of the game. But the bridge between them was a very simple, clear through line. Why yes. are people dying in this video game?
1: Right. Yeah, and and you even say, like, overcomplicate it for an RPG. And Ooh. I don't... I mean, you can have a really convoluted, uh, <sighs> too convoluted, right? Lore and setting, and there's you know a giant world, and every aspect of the world is. I, I'm thinking about Exalted.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't gonna say it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> where there's like so much lore that you need like an encyclopedia to to look up like who is this person and where did they enter into this thing and what you know and there's so much
0: history you can even argue the world darkness is like that too right
1: yeah absolutely the world of darkness um especially because a lot of bad i say bad not bad that's not the word i was looking for (laughs) a lot of the lines had some weird interconnectivity right and so Let's say it was consistent. but inconsistently <laughs> yes right. um and so you know you had a, there's a lot of stuff there and there is so much that like if you didn't start reading it from the beginning it's really hard to dig into and find out all the stuff. And so having that much information means that it is going to get lost. Readers are going to get caught on the things that they like and they will miss so much of the other stuff. And that's not to say that having a lot of things is bad, but that is to say that at, cer- at a certain point you hit kind of a Cognitive overload, and when you hit that point, you need to stop because player readers, whether they're reading just for enjoyment or they're playing your game, are not going to consume all of it, they're not going to absorb all of it, and you're going to waste your time,
0: yeah. And again, like I I mentioned, that people say they want to play everything in the game but they naturally select so let me kind of give an example to use chronicles darkness uh you know we're going to play a, a vampire the requiem game okay well sure. immediately you are cutting out an, a, like maybe a dozen other books right right it's like those other books may feature in bits of the game but we're just trying to focus on vampires so we're playing right. a vampire the requiem game all right so we've already opted out of a large chunk of the chronicles Darkness continuity. And then it's, okay, we're going to play uh, uh, characters, uh, you know, I'll I'll play a a Deva, you're going to play whatever, um, and we decide we're all part of the Invictus Covenant. Okay, well, that means none of the other Covenants are player characters. They may come up in gameplay, but we're going to focus a lot of our attention on on the Invictus Covenant. Right. And then we're going to set our game in New York City. Okay, well, we may, again, travel to other North American cities, we may travel overseas, but odds are pretty good. We're going to focus primarily in the, the New York state area in New York city specifically. So every time you make a decision about your game, you're already kind of spiraling down, spiraling down, spiraling down. Right. Uh, and that's natural and healthy. Um, so what, what you're saying, however, is that if someone says that a vampire game sounds like fun, what do I have to know to play? Right. And in this example, it's Okay. Pick a vampire clan, pick a vampire covenant, read the two page spreads about those, and whatever pop culture information you picked up about New York City through osmosis, that's all you need to kind of really play, aside from the rules and all that. But if you have a case of, okay, you need to know how the physics of the world work and the history of the world, and um, here's 50 pages of, of setting material that you have to parse before you can even start making decisions about your character, that's when we start getting to the overwhelming part.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Sometimes having that like setting stuff is interesting and good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people will read that and internalize it and it will help them make decisions like what kind of game do I want to run in the system? What uh, interesting thing do I want? You know, which of these things do I want to to portray? Uh, stuff like that. But when you're talking about world building and forming like, characterization, which you should be thinking about, especially if you're making a game. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yes, we get to chewing on the bell. <laughs> there are now two bells in here because there's one by the back door and one by the in this room, and both of them are in here right now.
0: See, th- this this is why I brought the puppy up earlier in the, the yeah. episode. Because we get, <laughs> so you now get the, the bonus track of puppy noises throughout this whole episode. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, so where was I oh yeah um so you want the setting to inform character choices right but you want it to do so in a way that when people are reading the setting and they say oh I want to play one of those well one they can
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um you shouldn't present anything in a good light that players can't interact with Mm -hmm. um and That should be interesting enough to where people will say, I want to play one of those. That's its own thing. Um, But when they go to character creation, there should be picks. There -hmm. should be, okay, I want to be from this area. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go and read that specific area, and it's not going to be 100 pages of lore about that area. Right. It's going to be four pages or, or two, you know, two pages, something, right? Um, that is not too hefty for the player to to dig into. It sh- should be something that you can easily summarize in, you know, I think actually d d does a great job summarizing their, their character picks um, without getting too deep into the setting and the lore. But there's a lot of setting books for D and D like there's, you know, forgotten realms, forgotten realms has cities and, uh, lots of setting stuff built into it, but you don't need to know all of that stuff to make your character.
0: Right. And to be clear, that's kind of when we're talking about overcomplicated, you know, detailed worlds, a lot of the stuff we're talking about here is just organization. If you can have a detailed, intricate world, but if it's organized well, and players can dig deep into the parts that they care about at the moment and jump in, then that will engage them better. Because a tabletop experience, I mean, one-shot convention games aside, is generally a a certain amount of time commitment. And if people can dive in and start playing and get excited about it, they'll go back and backfill in the reading later. Right. Uh, the example I always give is that uh, if you are a video gamer of a certain age, and I am, I remember <sighs> you had to read the instruction manual before you could start playing the game because otherwise the game does not care one iota about you unless you know going into it what you have to do.
1: Oh, I remember that.
0: Right? Like, uh, try playing any NES game from like the early 90s or late 80s without knowing anything about how that game works. and It's... Good luck. But modern video games don't do that. Like I can't do tutorials, right? Yeah, modern video games almost universally assume that you are going to just install the game or put it in your system, push play, and start playing. Right. Tabletop role-playing games ultimately should be trending towards that model. Yes. And so the the what I had to call the buy-in. What you're talking about the picks. Mm-hmm. Um, should be as seamless as possible. Absolutely. But again, that's just organization. Um, you can have a super detailed world that as long as it's not up front, that's fine. And this is what I mean, two uh, to my own horn, but this is the reason why I think Pugmire is so popular is because the buy-in is really simple. It's yep. easy with dogs. Uh, and it's like, okay, I want to play a dog in a fantasy world and do fun stuff and give dog puns. Great. This is the game for you. Pick a dog. What does your dog do? Okay, that's your class. Go. Right? That, that, that's more or less what you do. Um, And with the new edition, obviously, I tried to make that loop even faster and even easier, but then once you get in, it's like, oh, there's a whole backstory and there's a war with the cats, and the cats have their own society, and there's this you know, pirate port down at the bottom, and you don't need to know any of that to start. But once you get in, you can find there's layers and layers and layers. You know, same thing with uh, you know some of the stuff you've worked on, like Seven C. It's like basically like I want to play a pirate. Cool, here's a pirate game. What kind of pirate do you want to play? Pick a rough, real world analog country, and go. I want to mm-hmm. play fantasy French. Great, pick that country. Move on. Right. But then once you get in, there's a whole bunch of world under there. Right. And that's also
1: where like supplements come in mm-hmm. where you can like present a really light version of your world, you know, just enough information to get people hooked, just enough information to to give context to what these picks are about. And then supplements that do deep dives into the setting and really give you a lot of like hooks and information. And if you want to set your game in, you know, Montaigne, so using seventh c mm-hmm. then here's a whole book that has you know a quarter of it devoted to
0: Montaigne. right exactly so uh i'm gonna ask you a question that i already know the answer to but i'm curious what your, i'm not I'm curious your answer. i'm curious how, how big your outrage is going to be oh no um you talked a lot a minute ago about how uh the setting should shape player uh portrayal, right? Like yes. how, how you portray your characters. How much should rules shape setting and vice versa?
1: <sighs> A lot. Uh- <laughs> yes. That is the correct answer. A lot. Um <laughs> your, your setting should inform the rules. Um your rules should support the setting. Mm-hmm. So, when I say those two things like that, the the setting is, you know, the world in which you're playing in. And it's also what you're doing in the game. Mm-hmm. It's the the major conflicts. It's the, the 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 driving force behind why you're playing this game. And because that's true, you want to build mechanics around that setting that allow you to do the things you're supposed to be doing in the game.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Not only allow you to do the things, but also reinforce, positively reinforce the aspects of the setting that you as the game creator find most vital. Yep. So my perfect example is the game I can't talk about. Uh,
0: the perfect example is this thing I'm not going to tell you.
1: Um, it's a secret. I'm just trying to figure out how vague I can be about it. Uh, <laughs> the How can I put this vaguely? I, I'll just use a random example.
0: Okay.
1: That has, that has nothing to do with anything that I'm working on at all. Uh, <laughs> say there is a big magical thing in your world. And it is, that big magical thing is the driving force of the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being able to use magic is is special and new and everybody's, you know, curious about it and people are trying to learn about it and figure it out. You should have mechanics that support your players investigating and figuring it out
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and eventually using it. You should reward those actions through your mechanics, mm-hmm. either by giving experience for uh, for engaging with that, or for giving new mechanics for engaging with that, or you know if it's if there's a resource management element, regaining resources, um, something. There should be reward for interacting with. A part of your setting that you want people to interact with, and it should be highlighted in your setting. If there's a mechanic for combat, uh, you know, if your your game is a combat-heavy game like D and D is, mm-hmm. then you reward people for getting into combat. Yep. And your setting, as much as there is is a setting for generic D and D, is that there's just a slew of caves full of monsters and people needing saving and villages being harangued by goblins.
0: Perhaps dungeons, maybe even dragons.
1: Yeah. And that's just everywhere and can be reasonably found at any point in time because that's kind of what you're supposed to be doing in that game. Mm -hmm. And the setting supports it.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to to, to channel Monica Speca here for a moment. This is one of the reasons why the faux division of so-called fluff and so-called crunch is sometimes infuriating as a designer. Yes. Because the setting rules are still game rules. Yes. If the setting says you are a hero and you do heroic things, that is a rule of the game and should be treated the same as any other rule. It doesn't mean with reverence. It can also be broken and adjusted just like any other tabletop role-playing game rule. But it is still a rule. Yep, and the flip side of that is that that does mean your game mechanics are also setting. They uh, are. Um, you you great example that that D and ultimately combat simulator, which means that ultimately combat is rewarded. Another kind of uh, uh, positive example of this, I think, uh, is things like uh, humanity in Vampire the Masquerade, right? Uh, because other tabletop or other World of games don't have deal with humanity. They, they may deal with other moral things or whatnot, but ultimately, they don't quite have the same mechanics that Vampire the Masquerade does, which means that for vampires, this mechanic is important. Right. Uh, and other characters can make bad moral choices and deal with the consequences of them, but vampires have a hard-coded mechanic that says when you make a bad choice, something bad happens to you. Your dice do not work the same way because you have done bad things. Uh, and watching that number go down on your sheet is designed to have an impact on you. Now, in this case, the mechanics in the setting map, really well because of the whole the idea of, of the beast and vampires having to deal with their beast and struggle with humanity. It actually ties the setting, so that works out really well. Um, but absolutely, your mechanics can have an unintended impact and shaping of your setting. Like Because it, um, if combat is the main focus, combat is therefore positioned as the main way to resolve problems. Right. Uh, so if you don't want that to be the case, you either need to de-emphasize combat or present alternatives. Yes. Um, a game can have magic and not have a magic system. All that really means is that magic is not a central point of your game. Right. Uh, so you can hand wave magic and and again like if you look at say uh uh, chronicles darkness um it's possible to play a magician in say hunter the vigil but it's not Mm -hmm. a focus right so the the rules for magic you get are much muddier and blurrier and and just kind of weaker than say a mage the awakening game uh so just by having mechanics that's telling you something about your setting we are emphasizing this or we're not emphasizing that Yep, Um, I have seen games where there's no combat system. uh, Where it's just, if you get into a fight, you die. And then they present very intricate investigation or social interactions. Um, That matters. Um, There's uh, a game I just kickstarted, just got the PDF of recently, uh, called Justicar. uh, Which is... 1,000% 1,000% ace attorney The tips up role-playing game. And if you know me at all, you understand exactly why i backed that. Right.
1: Yes, I do. Um,
0: <laughs> but basically the rules of the game are, if it doesn't happen in the courtroom, it's not important. Right. Everything needs to ultimately be in the courtroom or fodder for the courtroom case. And the rules just say, if it happens out there, just, just narrate it out. And that's interesting. So there's no combat. In this game, but there's a whole lot of ways to art, to yell at people and present evidence, right?
1: And scream objection and
0: right. <laughs> it's so good. I love it. Um. So yeah. Uh. Uh. It's. It's. It. it, it I mean, we we've taken world building out. We're talking about it as a separate topic, but it really is just another aspect of game design. At the end of the day, it, it's it's game design all the way down. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. And I I would argue that thinking about your mechanics and how you're going to support your setting is a part of world building. Oh, 100%.
0: Which, now that leads to an interesting question. Um, So, for example, a lot of Onyx Path games use uh, Story Path Mm -hmm. as a basis for it. Uh, So, does that... Does that limit your world building? Or is that a... Challenged to overcome or is that a positive thing that oh this is a piece of the world building i don't have to build out because it's already there because it's implicit in the mechanics
1: you know i i do think there is a limitation on your world building due to the mechanics that you're making mm-hmm. um if you were you know story path is kind of one of these game uh, one of these systems that tries to be a catch-all Yep. Uh, it tries to allow for a, a variety of gameplay mm-hmm. um but even within the the different story path games we notice that the rules of story path change to fit the setting
0: mm-hmm.
1: to a certain degree like the most uh or the genre or the Uh, the kind of framework, Uh, the biggest one that I could point to is that they came from games. Right. Right. Where a lot of the systems for story path have been condensed down or changed to support this meta narrative that you are playing characters in a bad movie that Mm -hmm. don't know they're in a bad movie. Right. But you are literally the actors playing these characters Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are these you know this meta narrative of you know director's cuts and cinematics and scene endings and uh you know props and uh the the meta narrative that you know that this is all just a movie like literally Mm -hmm. all fake and the mechanics support that meta narrative, but those mechanics that support that meta narrative don't exist in the other story path games. I mean, they do and they don't. Right? They're called different things. They're changed and mutated, um, but they needed to to support that setting.
0: Right. But even there, like, also setting does kind of reframe mechanics. So, like, let's take uh, rewrites slash momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, in Trinity core rulebook and they came from mechanic works identically. Yep. It's uh, when you fail, you get a point and you spend that point to change an aspect of the world. Yep. But in They Came From, it's actors going to the writers and saying, listen, this script's terrible. Can you give me a better part? <laughs> Right. Uh, In Trinity, it's, oh, these talents are tapped into the multiversal nature of the world and use their sci-fi powers to find the best possible probability and go down that path. Yep. So even though it's the same mechanic, just by little things, by like changing the name and tweaking the the flavor around it, you're still getting a very different experience, even though the, the word for word rules are very similar.
1: Right, and the way it works is similar, but the setting around it is different.
0: Right, because um, you have to use again kind of implicit rules here, but because of the way they came from is written, you have to use movie language to explain the changes. Right, uh, and you have, in in uh, Trinity, you have to use science fiction language to explain the changes. So even if the thing is I want to say that I now have a gun and they came from, you have to justify that through uh, a, a bad cut. And, you know, there's there a cut. We never saw the scene where you got the gun, but now you have it. Right. Uh, and they came from, or in Trinity, it's the, okay, I'm going to the timeline where I remember to pack a gun on me and then therefore produce it. Right. The end result is the same, but it still feels different each, in each yeah, case. It
1: does. And it. It is a part of world building that you know you want that mechanic to make sense in your world. Mm-hmm. So you need to consider like dramatic editing can be a completely like you know when I think about dramatic editing, it's a really good mechanic yeah. in a lot of games, mm-hmm. um, allowing the player the ability to have some impact on the the narrative of the story mm-hmm. um, or have a thing, you know, go in their favor or get a thing that they didn't think of originally or whatever that is, it's a really good mechanic. Um, how you implement that mechanic, if you want that mechanic to show up in your game, uh, makes all the difference you know Mm -hmm. i can think of say like blades in the dark has a similar style mechanic Um, you don't just spend a point and say oh well i had uh, planned for this already before the the mission happened uh but you do a little flashback scene right and you roll to see how well that flashback scene went to explain how there is now a narratively appropriate thing that wasn't in the scene earlier.
0: Right. Because Blades and Dark is using a heist movie structure. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And that reinforces that heist movie idea of, oh, well, we'll flashback to where you already planned for that yep. uh, because the heisters are good enough to plan for all the eventualities of the heist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, but that is in essence, just a dramatic edit. Uh, but it's framed in a way that really suits the setting. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that, you know, when you're world building and you're thinking about mechanics to go in your world, you have to think of how does this mechanic fit into my setting? How does the world work on a metaphysical level that will allow me to give these opportunities to my characters
0: uh but again like um to, to roll back a little bit you have to be careful that even if you're reframing all of these mechanics uh, it, it, that can give a lot of flexibility to a, a system but you have to make sure that the inherent assumptions of the system aren't also unintentionally shaping your setting yes uh, so Story Path, for example, one of the core assumptions of Story Path is that your characters are competent. Mm-hmm. They're generally going to do what they set out to succeed. And that's something that initially seems like it's at odds with a game like they came from. Uh, because it's the, well, this is a silly game. You should probably want your viewpoint characters to be kind of incompetent and, and fail a lot. Mm-hmm. But. What Matthew did, which I thought was very clever, is that rather than making the humor about the characters failing, which can be done. There's plenty of games that do that extremely well. Right. Instead, it's the, what if they succeed, but the environment of making the movie is against them. Uh, and so that's where you have the, the cinematics, where all of the framing things of the characters succeeding are juxtaposed with how, how shit this movie is. Right. I escape because the set collapses uh we succeed because we just don't see that reel of the movie. Right. So the humor comes from the fact is that the, the the characters are competent because if you actually watch the movies that were homaging, the characters are usually heroic and manage to do what they want mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. It's just that the incompetence is the actual production values.
1: Right. The production value or the plot
0: itself. Right. So Matthew managed to sidestep that when designing the Day Came from games and I thought that was with us really well. But like if you're doing a straight horror game, uh, story path would need to be recontextualized in order to do that. Because if you do a horror game where the characters are going to ultimately go up against insurmountable odds and die, story path not going to be a good fit for that. Right. Uh, you need to reframe that into something that maybe you're the exceptions to a world where people generally face insurmountable odds and die. Uh, So something like, say, Psyon Masks and Mythos, it's not a traditional Cthulhu-style game. You're probably going to actually have a decent chance of dealing with, you know, the minions of the Elder Gods, unlike most Cthulhu-based games. But that's not the story we're telling with, say, Masks and Mythos. Instead, it's going to be a story about, okay, what if you're on the other side of that? You know, the the Vampire the Masquerade initial subversion of what if you're playing the monster? It's another kind of... Look at that! What if you're playing these elder gods? It means the elder gods, and how do you deal with that? So, recognizing, here's what the setting's gonna say, here's the setting, here's what the mechanics are gonna shape the setting. If they are insurmountable, you either need to change the set system or change the setting.
1: Right. Yeah, and there's ways to do horror with story path. Oh yeah, but it's it's not about failure on the characters' parts. It's about. Uh, either the consequences of their actions, that's really what it is. It's about the consequences of their actions. Not right. that they failed to take an action, but what their actions cause to to happen as like a, a cast-off effect of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. If I were to do a horror game using StoryPath, I would definitely do something like, okay, you succeed, but at what cost? Right. Um, and then it's the, okay, I keep succeeding, and I keep paying for it. That's not great. So then the horror comes from... Too much success, which is actually right. a viable design thing, and it would be really interesting to see a horror game that really focused on, okay, what happens when you succeed? It Keep you succeeding with all these costs, and how does that build up? Yep. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, so, so uh, we're we're actually on time. We're actually out of time. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I was I didn't know we were going to talk about that, but this, uh, this is one reason why I love chatting with you because it's always like let's talk about this for a little bit and then we go on for way too long. <laughs> way too long. Yes, absolutely. We certainly did not spend almost an entire meeting talking about identity cards.
1: That was last meeting. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right. Certainly not last week's meeting. Um, uh, But uh, if people wanted to talk to you about world building or maybe try to find out what this hypothetical game that you can't talk about really is, where do they find you online?
1: Um, I can be found on the Onyx
0: Path Discord
1: and also on my website, uh, daniellozon.com. Uh, sorry if there is a bell ringing in the background <laughs>
0: yeah. if people also want to ask you about your puppy that is also where they will find you
1: yes valid to ask me about my puppy
0: <laughs> um as for me uh you can find me on twitter at pugsteady or my website pugsteady.com that's p-u-g-s-t-a-t-y uh, you can also find me on uh the onyx path discord um right now it, it's it's to be honest, I'm talking about realms of Pugmire. So if you have a Pugmire question, that's definitely the place to get me It's mean, That's a lot of where my head's at at the moment. Um, in fact, as you're listening to this, is the last days of the realms of Pugmire Kickstarter. Uh, thank you for the ringing bell of endorsement. Because, <laughs> uh, yes, we have funded. We're happy about that. I, I would love to get some more stretch goals in. Uh, I would love yes. to get some more backers in. So uh, uh, we're, we're you're going to get a book. That's all sold, But definitely if you've got friends or people who are on the fence now's a great time to convince them to to back uh get the nice super cool limited edition book i want to see what that looks like i want to get more of those yep. out in the world yes um, and also that's the level i backed at yeah definitely um and we have a little surprise for the last few days uh, another reason for people to maybe consider bumping up their pledge i want to wanna spoil that uh but go swing by the kickstarter to to pick up the the last days of the new edition of Problems of Pugmire. Uh, so that is where you'll find us. Uh, you will find some configuration of the hosts here next week. Uh, hopefully, we'll all be back together again. But we'll see. Uh, but if that is the case, Danielle, definitely thank you so much for covering for me uh, as, I, as I make my way across the Atlantic. So I really appreciate yep. your help out with
1: that. Yeah, no worries.
0: And